welcome to the Augustine Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. This is a podcast about the work being done on the life and thought of St. Augustine of Hippo. Each episode features an interview with a different guest, usually on to talk about their own work that considers Augustine and his writings. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Philip Carey. Dr. Carey is a professor of philosophy at Eastern University, where he has taught for almost 25 years. He's the author of nine books, with four more on the way, and numerous articles on philosophy and theology, with a distinct emphasis on Augustine, and especially Augustine's Christian Platonism. Central to our conversation today, he is the author of Augustine's Invention of the Inner Self, The Legacy of a Christian Platonist. He's also the author of its two follow-up volumes, Outward Signs, the Powerlessness of External Things in Augustine's Thought, and Inner Grace, Augustine in the Traditions of Plato and Paul. Dr. Carey, thank you so much for joining me. We'll just jump right in. Tell me a little bit about how you got into Augustine, how you approach his work, and what has made you stay with Augustine for all these years. Right. Well, um, here I was in graduate school, and I was um, doing a PhD in philosophy, but then I added religious studies. So I'm, I'm, it was kind of a joint degree in philosophy and religious studies. And my interest in religious studies is Christian theology. So I wanted to get a dissertation on a historical figure who was both a philosopher and a theologian. And, um, you know, there's, there's a number of those figures. Uh, it could have been Aquinas. It could have been Kierkegaard. Um, but uh, it turns out I was trying to do a dissertation on Martin Luther, on his uh, theological epistemology. Now, Luther's not uh, a philosopher by most reckonings, but you know he, he knew his medieval philosophy and that, that shaped his epistemology. And I was fascinated by something Luther was doing that I thought was deeply biblical and rather unusual in the Western tradition, which is his uh, deep commitment to the external word. Right? Lutherans love to talk about word and sacrament. And word and sacrament, especially the gospel word, works like a sacrament because it's an external word that gives what it signifies, right? So the, the structure of a sacrament is an external sign uh, conferring what it signifies and especially conferring the gift of grace. Luther's notion of the gospel works exactly like that, right? Uh, the gospel is an external sign that gives you the grace of Christ, indeed gives you Christ in person. And I thought, this is a really interesting epistemology, right? This is an interesting account of how you know God. Um, so I realized, first of all, that, that what one of the interesting things about this is is it ties the founder of Protestantism with a Catholic sacramental notion, right? Yeah. Now the Lutherans know about this, but most people don't, right? The, the founding, the, the central distinctive concept of Protestantism is based on essentially a Catholic notion of sacramental efficacy. Now that's really interesting. And there's an epistemology there. And then um, I, I realized, okay, that the, the background of this epistemology is Augustine's semiotics. Right? Augustine has a theory of signs, and I'm thinking, okay, that theory of signs explains how an external sign can give an inward gift. At least that's how it's supposed to go. And then I started reading Augustine for what I thought would be a first chapter of this dissertation, and I realized he's profoundly different than I was led to believe. Um, and I had the misfortune of making all these discoveries, or so I thought, about Augustine. I still think they're discoveries. Um, I think there's all sorts of reasons why uh, 
scholars don't want to let Augustine say what he says. And when I let Augustine say what he says, what I got is something that wasn't looking like Luther. You know, I wanted Augustine to look like Luther, um, but he didn't. Um, he looked like, um, well, someone with an inward turn, someone who's inventing the inner self, someone who's, who's turning away from external things, uh, not because external things are bad. No, they are not. External things are beautiful, in fact, but they distract you from the presence of God inward and, and you know, the, the confessions is, is really all about that. So I ended up discovering that uh, Augustine's semiotics uh, doesn't really have a place for a notion of sacramental efficacy where external things have the power to give you a spiritual and inward gift. I was very disappointed. I thought Augustine was going to be more like Luther or more like Thomas Aquinas for that matter. Right. But he's not. Um, and I, um, as a result, I also um, uh, got a bunch of good Catholic friends mad at me for, for saying these things about Augustine. Um, uh, so at any rate, that, that, that one chapter on Augustine's semiotics that was supposed to be the first chapter of a dissertation on Luther's theological epistemology grew to a massively oversized dissertation that ended up becoming three books. Uh, and it took me a long time to follow up all the things that I'd been learning about Augustine as I was researching the dissertation. So your dissertation was on Augustine's theological yeah. epistemology, and that has continued to be fruitful in these books. Yeah, it, it kept me with stuff to do, uh, uh, writing and, and scholarly work for oh, more than a dozen years. Good. And, and at the end of three books, and I finally got around to getting back to Luther. Good, good. Yeah, I've had a lot of people ask me why. Why am I writing on Augustine? A lot's been said. The trite answer I always give is that's what everyone who's ever done anything good did. <laughs> they all did their thesis on Augustine and did a whole other yeah. career, but it seems like a decent place to start and something to build on for a lifetime. I mean, it is important if you're writing a dissertation to write on a topic uh, that I think is 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 worth a, a lifetime's work. I mean, the other pro uh, approach would be to, you know, just get the dissertation done and it doesn't matter. But um, when I was picking a dissertation topic, I wanted to write on somebody that's worth spending the rest of my life thinking about. Um, and it turned out to be Augustine more than Luther, even though Luther's more, more my favorite theologian really. Um, nonetheless, Augustine is someone eminently worthy of spending the rest of your life studying and learning from and, and disagreeing with and agreeing with and, and yeah. Um, and I'm I'm a better person, a better thinker, and a better Christian because of spending all that time with Augustine. Yeah. You made a comment. We often don't want Augustine to say what he says. Tell me more about that. Where do you find that pushback, especially in those two names that always come up in his reception, Luther and Aquinas? Uh -huh. Why don't we like listening to Augustine for what he says? What sort of pushback that you've gotten for your work? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it is interesting. Some people push back against my work because they like the inward turn and others because they don't. Um, so the ones who like the inward turn want to defend Augustine's inward turn. The ones who don't like it want to say, but but he has a, a, a robust sacramental theology and it's, it's not an inward turn. Um, and uh, the, the, the ones that grieve me are the ones who, who also don't really like the inward turn and, and, and try to say that that's not going on in Augustine. Um, but I think it is. Um, he... Um, yeah, so there's several things going on that, that um, I was uh, unhappy with. Um, so I'm a critic of Augustine, but I also am an unhappy critic because I think he is my father in the faith. He's a church father. 
and uh, he's smarter than I am. He's a better Christian than I am. Um, and so, you know, I want to be in a position of learning from him. But he also says um, that he wants readers who care more about the truth than about Augustine. Right. So. All right. So there we go. Um, so the uh, so let's well, like think of this key moment in the confessions of uh, book 10, kind of the hinge around which book 10 turns, where he says, late have I loved you. Oh, beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. Now he's talking to God, of course. God is beauty, capital B, the, the, the beauty that's the source of all beauty. And he says, uh, you were within me, but I was outside. Right. right. Um, which striking thing, right? Uh, God is more inward than, than our inmost self, he says elsewhere uh, earlier in the Confessions. Uh, you were inside, I was outside. And I was chasing all these beautiful things that you made. Um, and that made me ill-formed because these were well-formed, beautiful things. But I became ill-formed because I cared more about them than about, about the God who was within me. So you were within me, I was looking outside. Um, he says something like that also, um, is it book seven? Uh, yeah. The, your light was within, I was looking away. It's like I'm looking outside and the light's shining within. Um, now, in my Lutheran mode, I want to say, yeah, you should be looking outside, not at, at the beauty of the world as if that's God, but at the gospel, right? And, and you, you need this clinging to this gospel, right? Luther speaks all the time about clinging to the gospel word. But Augustine doesn't want you clinging to external things. Um, and that language is, is very clear. He wants to cling to God, and he doesn't think you cling to God by clinging to external things. Uh, and that's sort of systematic throughout the whole the whole thing, um, the whole of, of confessions. So he needs to turn inward to see the light rather than be drawn outward to these beautiful things outside of him. Um, in Confession 7, book uh, chapter 1, there's a fascinating moment where he's, he's um, saying he's trying to understand the nature of God, right? There's a non-spatial being. Um, and it turns out the clue to God's non-spatial being is the non-spatial being of the soul. So the step is turn away from the external things that are spatial, look inside the soul, then turn inward and, and turn inward and look upward, right? But meanwhile, at the early stages, he's got this problem. He's got all these phantasms. And that's the Latin term he uses, phantasms. Um, and he wants to wave them away like gnats. The gnats are like clouding his vision. He can't see because the 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 external imaginations, right? When the imaginations of our heart, which are sensible, right? And you, you close your eyes and you're imagining physical, sensible things. And how can you swap those things away so you can see a thing that's not physical, right? Uh, not not corporeal. Doesn't take up space. Doesn't have colors. How can you do that? He, he's stuck. He can't do it. And he keeps on waving away these gnats, which are phantasms. Now, what's fascinating is um, in the Aristotelian tradition, going to, to Thomas Aquinas, if you want to know anything, you have to turn to the phantasms. That's a key right. phrase, right? Karl Rahner writes a whole book about that. You have to turn to the phantasms. Augustine is saying turning to the phantasms is sin, right? Um, it's impure, right? We need to turn away from the phantasms. Well, that's because he's a Platonist, not an Aristotelian, right? Um, but I think it's the Aristotelians who are in a better place to understand how an external thing can give you a spiritual gift. We need to turn to the phantasms. We need to turn to external things, very specific external things, right? The sacraments, the gospel, the flesh of Christ. And I think Augustine doesn't give us the wherewithal for that outward turn, right? 
Um, and and it's, it's, it's not just the confessions, it's his, his semiotics, it's his sacramental theology. I think he's really very consistent about wanting to turn away from external things and find God within. And again, over and over again, I have to emphasize to my Catholic friends, this does not mean he despises external things. External things are good and beautiful. God made them, but they can't make you happy and you can't cling to them in order to find God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. There in many ways sort of seems to be almost a disconnect at times between his metaphysics and that inward epistemology. He's mm -hmm. so confident of everything's good, everything's beautiful in its place, created by God. But yeah, this constant turning away from, from external and toward phantasms. Yeah. Well, that's really, really good. You're right a lot on Augustine's Platonism, his allegiance to Plotinus. Mm -hmm. Has that been an intentional place to mine, or has that just been something that's sort of kept coming back? Why is that so central in your work? Well, in part because I'm a, play, uh, a philosopher, and so I, I you know, I, I think that philosophers in the West are all, all indebted to Plato, um, and a whole lot of them are indebted to Plotinus without even knowing it. Um, right. And I think Augustine thinks philosophically. Um, he thinks consistently and systematically. Um, he's brilliant, and, and when he reads the Psalms, for example, he has this wonderful resonance with, with the imagery of the Psalms, but he's steering it in a direction of a, of a Neoplatonic spirituality. I think he's, you, you, when you bring the Platonist kind of lens to Augustine, everything he says falls into place and makes deep sense, right? Um, if you don't have the Platonist lens, then, then much of what he says sounds strange or puzzling, or you know, why does he make this move? Why does he make this move? Well, if you have the Neoplatonic lens, you say, oh, it makes perfect sense that he's making this move, right? It makes perfect sense that he reads the Psalms this way, right? So um, so that that's crucial. He's, he's, um, he's bringing that Platonic lens himself to the Psalms. And again, me as a critic of Augustine, the thing that worries me about him is that um, the Neoplatonic spirituality uh, establishes the goal of Christian spirituality, right? You want to see God. Well, okay, it's a whole lot like climbing out of a dark cave and into the light of the good, right? Um, and that that imagery from the allegory of the cave is pervasive in Plotinus. Augustine picks it up, and and you know you can understand a whole lot of Augustine spirituality by mapping it on the on the the, the map or the landscape of the allegory of the cave as taken up by Plotinus. Yeah, right. That's good. You say you're a critic of Augustine, which is sort of rare. Often with scholars who spend so much time with Augustine, they are defending Augustine, whether that's right. defending him from a Catholic position or, you know, many Protestants come to Augustine to defend Augustine as sort of everyone's favorite and perhaps only Christian between Paul and Luther. How do you? <laughs> yeah, for many Protestants, yeah, unfortunately. How have you navigated that place of being an Augustine scholar, being a critic? What is behind that criticism? Yeah, well, behind that criticism really is, um, um, well, it's a conviction that I share with Luther, and which is why um, after I finally got done with three books on Augustine, I, I went back to Luther, um, because that's that's where he, I mean he remains my favorite theologian of the whole tradition, um, which is saying something because when Luther gets things wrong, boy does he get things wrong, right? Um, he was a much less sane and decent human being than Augustine was, um, but I think the stuff he's thinking about in terms of the gospel really gets something right, and um, and the reason why is, is philosophical. So perhaps the one philosophical insight I've had in my life that might be something close to original is um, about epistemology um, and about the epistemology of knowing other persons. 
knowing other persons is different from knowing, say, mathematics. Knowing mathematics works in a, in a deeply platonic way, right? Um, faith seeks understanding, which is a platonic notion. You know, you, you put your faith in what your teacher tells you, the authority of your teacher, which is a big, big notion in, in Augustine. You believe in the authority. You write down the formula for the Pythagorean theorem, say, and um, then eventually you understand it for yourself. You say, aha, now I see it. Right? And that's platonic vision. It's intellectual vision. It's like what happens early on as you're climbing out of the cave. Um, whereas knowing another person is different. In knowing another person, believing their word is central because persons have a right to a say so, you know, a, a right to a say about who they are. And if you try to get around that, you're not respecting them as a person. Right? Mm. So the, the mathematical model, which I think is also the Platonist model, is not a good model for knowing someone as a person. And I think the way we know God is, is, is the way we know a person, right? We, we, we listen to the word of God and the word of God reshapes our hearts. And Luther gets that in spades, right? That's, that's what it's all about for Luther. And I think what he's done really is he's taken the, the biblical, well, the central strand of biblical epistemology. How do you know God? By believing his word, right? That's, that's everywhere in the Bible. And he's made that into uh, the, the central epistemology of his own theology. And you know what? It, it, it's how we know persons in general. Right? I think the, the biblical epistemology that he's articulating is really an account of how we know persons. And it's a profoundly different uh, epistemology than the Platonist epistemology, where it's all about seeing for yourself. Right. You start by believing your teacher. You know, you begin with faith. Right? You begin with authority. With the rules. Uh, Augustine was it. You begin with authority. Right. Believing what your teacher tells you. But you don't want to end there. You want to see for yourself. That's built into all of Platonic metaphysics and epistemology. But that's not a coherent goal when it comes to knowing someone else. Mm -hmm. Knowing someone else, the deepest thing is to believe their word, to believe what they tell you about who they are. Uh, at least if it's a good person, right? If it's, a, if it's a liar, you wanna see through a liar, but that's not respecting them as, as persons who have a say so, right? Um, so when we know God, it's gonna have to be by believing what God has to say for himself. Um, so that's the, the sort of driving insight, um, which is really a philosophical thought that I hope is, is rooted in biblical thought. Yeah, that's very good. And it's perhaps the best place to get into this book of, of the inner self because it uh -huh. or perhaps should have been the best place to end because you end the book by noting that Augustinian Edwardness gives us a, a problem about otherness. Yep. Right. That's sort of yep. the conclusion is. If we can only really know what's inside, how can we know it's outside, much less love it? Right. Can we really know and love the other as other? Because the mark of otherness is externality. Tell me a little bit about this argument itself, going through Augustine, his differences from Plato and Plotinus. Yeah. The shift from Augustine to Locke. <laughs> okay. When I first set out to do my thesis, knowing none of the literature outside of Augustine, I really was fascinated by how do we get from Augustine to Locke? Oh, you, ah, what okay. what happened in late scholastics? And I've trimmed off most of most of those avenues, just focused on the ideas in Augustine. But that was my first thought was I would love to do a historical philosophy. How do we get from Augustine to Locke? Ah, so this yeah. was fascinating. As as you know, I've told you. I picked up your book my first week here in Aberdeen, <laughs> and I said I can't read this. Like, I cannot read this before spending a long time with Augustine because 
it's going to mess up everything if I read his take on Augustine's <laughs> inner self before I read Augustine's. Um, but yeah, so you, you got to read the primary to... literature first. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. So now that gets you into trouble, you realize, because then you end up thinking different thoughts than the ones you're supposed to think. Right. That's uh, good people, trouble to be in. happy with that always. Yeah. So yeah, tell me a little bit about the argument of this book and where Augustine falls between Plato, Plotinus, and Locke. Right. Right. So, um, well, let's think about Plotinus, right? Um, I'm, I've already invoked the allegory of the cave, which I hope is familiar to most people. Um, certainly, if you're an Augustine scholar, you ought to know that, right, from the Republic. Plotinus comes along, and um, he's picking up some uh, a bunch of things about the soul from from Plato, um, including. Well, he has a sense of what Thomas Aquinas will later call the um, uh, matter as the principle of individuation. It's bodies that make us individuals. It's because, of course, individual is a modern term. Um, the, the ancient term is particulars, right? And particulars are modeled on something higher and better than particulars, right? Namely, right. The forms, the essences, um, virtue and justice and the good and all those, um, the true and the good and the beautiful. Uh, in some deep sense, our souls are meant to be modeled after those eternal forms. Uh, but that means, you know, suppose suppose you believe in the immortality of the soul in Plato's kind of way, and you don't really believe that bodies are going to be resurrected or something like that. Come on, that's not, that bodies go in the ground and rot. So you do have this recollection. You, 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 Plotinus will turn it into an inward turn, um, and, and the language of inward turn is everywhere in Plotinus. Epistrophen aisto iso, right? He uses that language a lot. It's perhaps most vividly in the that uh, beautiful uh, little essay on beauty in Plotinus um, uh, Ennead 1.6. He has this inward turn. Well, if if bodies are, are, are what make us particulars and give us a particular place in time and space, what happens when we turn inward? We see the same thing that everyone else sees. The inner space of the soul in Plotinus is a shared space. It's not a private inner world, right? So there's an inward turn in Plotinus, quite emphatically, but it's not a turn to a private inner space. It's a turn to a public inner space. Now, what's fascinating about Augustine, that's he picks that up in um, in uh, on pre uh, choice of the will, De Libero Arbitrio, Book Two, where the inner world is the public world. The outer world is the private world. Mm. Because if if I want something material, something corporeal, I want a piece of pie. I take a piece of pie. You can't have that piece of pie. But suppose what we want is wisdom, right? The more wisdom I have, none of it, I'm, I'm not taking it away from you, right? So the inward turn is to a shared public space, right? even in, in the early Augustine, right? Uh, the outward, it's the outward world that is private, particular, right? P people have to fight over pieces of the pie and, and lots of other things. Whereas when you're turned inward, you don't have to fight over wisdom, right? Uh, she is a beautiful woman. That's the image that Augustine uses. And the more I embrace her, the more available she is for you. And in a chaste way, right? Augustine will, will right. add, right? So so the, the inner space is public. It is shared. Um, Augustine's going to change that. But, but first, you have to sort of get the idea that, that that's the original version of the inner space in Platonism is a shared inner space. So I, I, I in the book, I, I invoke an image from, from Plotinus that is absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, you, you can think of Plotinus as, as picturing 
ontology or metaphysics as a set of concentric spheres, right? At the center is, is the simple point of the one, right? No differentiation, no internal structure, just a simple point. And then there's the whole sphere of nous, right? The, uh, the intellectus, the, the, the divine mind. And then uh, you can think of it as on the outside of that sphere um, is the revolving world of the soul. Because the soul moves like the heavens, right? But it doesn't die. It doesn't get old. It's the, it's the world soul. It's, it's the one soul that, that because all souls are really one. Right. Says, right? Particular souls are just like a, a face on the surface. So imagine this immense sphere of the soul, which is the, the soul of the whole world. And then there's lots of little faces facing outward, right, on this big sphere, right? I, I draw this for my students, and I can't draw it right now. But um, so you have to imagine this, this immense sphere and all these little faces facing outward into the corporeal external world, right? They're facing outward to the externals. That's what we're doing right now. You're looking outside of your eyes. I'm looking outside of my eyes. We are faces on the, on the outside of the one sphere of the soul looking outward. But if we turned inward, Right? If you and I were to turn inward right now and touch eternal wisdom, or maybe think about mathematics, two plus two equals four, we're turning in, inward and seeing the same thing. The inner space of the soul is one shared inner space. If we turn inward, we see that inwardly we are divine, we are God. At the inside of us is the divine mind, and at the, at the center of it is, is, uh, is the one or the good. That's Plotinus. Obviously, Augustine can't just sort of take that over entirely, right? Because eventually, well, what he ends up doing uh, quite emphatically uh, over and over again in the Confessions, among other places, is to say, look, um, you turn inward and you have to look upward, right? And why? Because the soul, the human soul, is beneath God. It is below God. God is above, not above like, like you know, like stars above the, 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 the earth or or like uh, oil on water, he says, that God is above because he made me. And that's the Christian doctrine of creation, which Plotinus doesn't believe and doesn't have. Um, because I'm a creature, my inner space can't be God. It can't be the mind of God, right? God is above me because he's my creator. And Augustine sort of, somewhere about five or five years into his career as a Christian writer, he, he sort of, he nails that one and he nails that door shut. There's no more public inner space. Um, well, actually, there is a public inner space, but it's not a divine inner space. It's right. not the mind of God. God. All right. the same. Right, because what he does is, is his picture, right? So, so let's go from, from climbing out of a dark cave in Plato to this uh, sphere with the faces on the outside in Plotinus. And then in Augustine, the image of the inner self is, is like walking into a, a house in, an, in the ancient world where there's no roof, right? If you want to see the sun, you got to go inside this house and look up, right? He talks about courtyards and things. That's the imagery right. he uses in Confessions 10. You go inward, you look upward, and what you see is the light of the divine sun, right? The same sun, really, that Plato's talking about in the allegory of the cave, which you can call the true and the good and the beautiful and God, right? And that's shining downward, and you're looking upward, and you can only see it from the inner space, right? If you go outside the house, then you're looking at all those beautiful things that God made that are physical and, and you know, clinging to them doesn't give you God. Turn inward and look upward and there's God. And then along comes Locke. And, and how you get from Augustine to Locke, that's a long story, right? But L Locke takes this inner world and he puts the roof on it. 
right? He puts a roof on it. Okay, yeah. There's no divine light shining within the inner self. The modern inner self is private. It's individual, like, like Augustine, right? But but it's it's cut off from the divine inner light. And all you get is, is images from the outside world, like a camera, right? It's, it's actually, he actually compares the inner self, Locke does, to a camera oscura. He actually uses the language dark chamber, which is in, in Italian, that's camera oscura. That's the same structure as a camera, right? Camera is, is Italian for chamber, but it's also where we get our word camera. And, and it's like the images from outside are projected on the back wall and we never get to look outside the window, right? We're stuck in this inner self and all we see is images of the outside world. And boy, I mean, people have been trying to escape that inner self for, for, for decades, right? Or for centuries. Um, people feel trapped in there. And, and uh, I did, right? I didn't, I don't want to believe in that kind of inner self. Um, and then, oh, there's one more thing I missed. If you go back to Augustine with that inner self with, with, with no roof, right? Um, but there's a sense in which we can have a shared inner space because Augustine, like Plotinus, believes that in, in the fullness of, of the eschaton or the fullness of, of beatitude, we'll be able to, to see each other's minds. We'll, you know, something like reading each other's minds. We'll be able to see the other, other's thoughts directly. Right, right. I was going to ask words. you about that. Is that something yeah. that Plotinus fills out that sort of sociality of say, if we're both faces on the outside of the sphere yeah. and I look inward and you look inward, well, theoretically we're actually finally looking at ourselves and we can know each other. I know Augustine picks that language up. Is that present in Plotinus first? Um, yeah, he does have language of, of knowing other souls um, directly, right? It's not very prominent because ultimately what Plotinus wants to know is, is the one um, or at least the divine mind. The one can't really be known. It's blind right. knowing, right? But so what? What everyone really wants to know is the divine mind. But um, there is a sense in which, which we can see each other's thoughts. Um, and yeah, and 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 then let's see. Augustine comes along, and and for him, words are signs that function as what he calls admonitions, right? Mm -hmm. Or reminders, kind of like reminders to recollect in Plato's sense. But Augustine sort of ditches all the stuff about reincarnation, and the the words are admonitions that say turn inward, you know, look over there, look look within, right? It's not me you want, look within, look higher, right? Um, that's Confessions 10. So you turn inward, and you'll be seeing the same things that other people see, and you're sharing the truth, right? And that's something that's 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 well, it's beatitude. You're sharing the truth, you're sharing wisdom, you're sharing God. Um, and incidentally, you're also sharing each other's thoughts. Um, and you don't need words for that. Words just tell you where to look. Yeah. So I think that's that's a deeply platonic, uh, rather Platonist image, right? Um, and it, it really comes from Plotinus's conviction of the, the unity of all souls. But but ultimately, that that really is rooted in Plato, because there's nothing to differentiate souls uh, if you don't have bodies. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, Augustine's picture of this, of course, gets very complicated because he actually believes in the resurrection of the body. He seems to have hesitated about that in his earliest writings. Yes. But by the time, you know, two or three years into his career as a Christian writer, he's, he's, he, he realizes, okay, got to teach resurrection of the body, right? You, that, that's, that's Christian doctrine. And that makes things more complicated. It's almost comical about Locke when you lay it out that quickly. Mm -hmm. is the picture of the cave and the picture of Locke's camera 
are yeah. metaphorically not that distinct. Yeah. You know, these sort of closed chambers, whereas I guess Locke would just say, no, that is what it is. You never get to leave these yeah. closed chambers with a picture on the wall. Yeah. As far as the metaphors go, they're not too far apart. Yeah, except, yeah, I mean, it's like the allegory of the cave with, with where you never get out of the cave. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Perhaps it's helpful to look at the distinction between inwardness as divinity in a place where you see God, mm-hmm. and of course, the big contrast in Augustine, inwardness as sin, and of course, this love of self that, that goes on with Augustine. You you invent an inner self and you call loving that self sin. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that tension? Ah, right. Yes. So, um, yeah, this is one of the things that, that kind of scandalized me about the, the early Augustine and his relationship to Plotinus. Because um, in Plotinus, um, you know, souls can be impure. This is language that goes back to Plato's Phaedo. Souls can be impure because they get you know too attached to the body. But the soul itself is like gold. Right? The soul itself is like a, a, a piece of gold and you can get crud on top of it. But you clean off the crud that is to separate the soul from the body. And the souls are inherently pure and, and perfect. Right. Um, the notion of a corrupted soul in Plotinus never goes very deep. Right. It's 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 dirt on the outside. But clean off the dirt and, and souls are, are perfect. They're, they're images of of, um, of the divine mind. Whereas Augustine souls can be more deeply corrupted than that because they're creatures. And when they distance themselves from God by sin, um, yeah, you have distortion, you have a deformed imago dei, right? And, and that, that's something he, he works on, uh, especially in the, in the treatise on the Trinity, right? The, the, the form of God in us, the, the, the image of the Trinity in us is a deformed image until it's reformed by, by, uh, by faith and hope and love. Um, so that, that deformation, um, uh, right, that deformation can take the form of, um, trying to base your being on yourself right that that's typically the, the formula for pride in augustine city of god especially right um pride means trying to become the basis of your own being augustine doesn't quite use the phrase in crotovatus in say that's luther's phrase but right. i think luther's phrase is really picking up on on augustine's notion of pride and and saying yeah you're trying to base everything on yourself um and uh but you can't, right? Whether you like it or not, you are God's good creature. Um, and I, oh, in fact, the, the image of, of pride there, the, the analysis of pride uh, that Augustine gives us goes back to Satan, right? Satan is a kind yeah. of thought experiment in Augustine. You know, what is it like to sin when you don't have a snake or an, a, an apple and a tree, right? And you don't have bodies, you just have the angels, right? And there's nothing in the universe that isn't good. There's not even any physical things yet, right? How is sin even possible? Well, all you have to do is love the creature more than the creator. What right. creature are you going to love more than the creator? Yourself, right? And that becomes the, the primal sin for Augustine and, and for, the, for the rest of the Christian tradition in the West. Um, it's a very powerful analysis. And I think Luther is building on that, um, which means, interestingly, that for Luther, um, carnal sins are really far down the, 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 um, the, the road. I mean, the fired on the totem pole the, the really serious sins are, are about pride and self-regard yeah right i think that's why this seems so foreign for augustine so much seems like yeah do not go near the carnal sin right look inward, look inward. Uh, you gotta withdraw not look to yourself 
right? Got to withdraw from external things, he says, quoting Cicero of all things. Uh, well, withdraw from the senses. That's the term he, he gets from Cicero's Tusculan Disputation. It's it's a it's a theme that that you don't have to be strictly Platonist to believe in. Uh, Cicero would, would pull on it. Um, of course, Cicero was a student at the Academy, so you know there's a bit of quite a bit of Platonism in Cicero. Right, right. Well, let me ask you. You do make one chapter at least on Aristotle, and this might be helpful for us just looking at identity. Of course, the Aristotelian concept being different right. than Leibniz, yeah, being different sure. than Plato. Where do you see Aristotle's sort of concept of identity? Ah. How is that distinct? And that may be a little more more familiar to people, these concepts of Aristotle and Leibniz than Plato and Plotinus. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have not read their Plotinus, and there are some Augustine scholars who haven't read their Plotinus, and I, I think they should. Um and Plotinus, I think his his whole the whole structure of his metaphysics and ontology is tied to notions of identity and difference. Right, the more difference, the less d divine. Right, the more identity, the more divine. There's nothing more self-identical than the one. Right, which right. which not even it's not even enough duality to identify A equals B. Right, uh, that that's at the level of of the noose or the divine intellect. Uh, in the one, there's just pure oneness. Right, I, sort of pure identity. And so knowledge is the identity of the mind and its forms, right? Um, uh, and that, that you know, Plotinus gets that from Aristotle. Uh, Plotinus pulls on not just Plato, but on Aristotle and uh, also a fair amount of Stoic ethics. Um, and, and that's partly why um, Porphyry, Plotinus's student, writes a little book on, on how Plato and Aristotle actually agree with each other. Right. We don't have the book. We only have the title. But but, but he act, that's the title. Plato and Aristotle uh, agree. Cicero also thinks Plato and Aristotle agree. Um, so this notion that that Plato and Aristotle are two fundamentally different ways of thinking about the world is not the ancient notion. No. Right? Cicero disagreed. Porphyry disagreed. I think Plotinus disagreed. Um, after all, Aristotle studied with Plato for 20 years in the academy. Right. Um, so so Aristotle's notion of identity. Uh, with the of the, the, the identity of the, the the mind and the forms that it knows, where the mind is informed by the form and therefore is that form, right? Um, that's th that's the structure of the divine mind, according to Plotinus. The divine mind is a mind that's identical with the forms that it knows, uh, and you, you couldn't have that without uh, Aristotle's notion of identity as, mm. as a sort of epistemological epistemological identity, um, the mind being identical with the form. Yeah. Now, obviously, Augustine doesn't follow that claim that you are what you know. Right. Do you see him pick up that theme? Perhaps as Jamie Smith has famously claimed, you are what you love. Is there any of that platonic identity that, that persists? Yeah, do you think? yeah. Yeah. I think um, Augustine will more likely prefers the language of unity rather than identity mm -hmm. when he talks about, yeah. talk about love, right? Love is a unifying force. Um, I'm not sure why, where he gets that idea from, but it's very, very strong in him that love is a unifying force. It's like, um, it's like gravity, right? My right. weight, my love is my weight. Uh, so the, so the, the love is like this gravitational force that pulls you toward what you love. But he also says it's like glue, right? Uh, so it glues you to what you love. And, you know, if, if what you love is something temporal and, and transitory, like, I don't know, alcohol or money, right? You unite yourself to it whatever way you can. You, you drink the wine, you you grab as much money as you can. But this is 
you are united with this to the extent you can be, and and it's unsatisfying because our hearts are always restless until they rest in in eternal happiness. Um, so if you love the eternal truth and goodness and beauty, um, you love what you can't lose. Right? And that's yeah. a, a crucial theme in this early ethics, right? You should love what you can't lose. Well, if you love God, you can't lose what you love. Uh, yay, right? You love your friends. You love a mortal man as if he would never die. That doesn't work. That's wretchedness, right. as, he, as he says in Confessions Book 4. But love the eternal truth. And, and that's, you're united to the eternal truth. That's yeah. that's beatitude right there, yeah. So I think that's that's how love works. It it really isn't identity, and Augustine doesn't have this notion of of uh, the form informing the human mind the, the way uh, Aristotle does. Right, right. But there is some unity. Yeah. Now you do have a an interesting epistemological claim. Uh, you say I interpret Augustine as if it never crossed his mind that human nature needs to be elevated. Uh, a supernatural gift of grace in order to see God. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, yes. Play. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. This is one of the ways that, that I get my Catholic friends mad at me. I'm um, sure. Yeah. This seems uh, very foreign to a lot of, a lot of yeah. Augustinian scholarship. Well, I mean, there is this fascinating thing that happened in 20th century Catholic thought was this huge fight over the supernatural, um, you know, with Delubac at the center of it. And I think the reason why is, is that, uh, Augustine doesn't have Thomas's, Thomas Aquinas's notion of the supernatural. It's just not there. And um, the Neo-Thomists had a deep commitment to finding it there in Augustine, and it's not there, right? Um, Augustine doesn't use the word supernatural. He doesn't need the concept supernatural um, because he's, he's thinking of, of kind of this intellectual vision, which is not identity, right? But if intellectual vision is understood as identity, the way Thomas Aquinas does, because he's a he's an Aristotelian, then how in the world can we become identical with the mind of God? Right. right? That's surely going to be beyond the power of any created nature. And Aquinas says, yes, it's beyond the power of any created nature. And yet it's still our happiness. So how do we have this happiness? It's going to require this supernatural elevation, right? Mm. And so the Thomas, I think, invents the notion of the supernatural as a way of solving this conceptual problem. That he inherits from basically Augustine on the one hand and, and Dionys uh, pseudo Dionysus on the other hand. Hmm. Augustine says it's it's seeing God that's our happiness. Dionysus says God can't be seen. God is being you know utterly incomprehensible. How can you reconcile these two statements? Well, God is utterly incomprehensible to any created nature except when it's elevated by by uncreated grace. Well, actually, it's elevated by created grace. That's important. Hmm. Um, we don't have this this essence energies distinction that you have in the East. It's it's created grace, um, and uh, Augustine just doesn't need that notion, um, and Thomas does, and yeah, and that that makes a big big difference. It seems to me. No, no, that's very interesting. Uh, it is a big big difference. Yeah, yeah, but I I agree. That's one of those things. It is hard to let Augustine say what he wants to say. In, in those sorts of things. Yeah, we have such an investment in in letting in having Augustine be either a good Catholic or a good Lutheran or something, but he's not quite what any of us want him to be. Yeah, and that's right. hard. Yeah, a lot of it's not. I mean, I I don't want to paint the picture that it's malicious in any way, but we have so much Thomistic scholarship, especially you know in the philosophy world, and so yeah. many of the those who are working on Augustine are coming to Augustine 
from Aquinas. Right. And right. so we get a lot of concepts locked in in artistic yep. philosophy. And then we go read Augustine and we impart those. You you have an interesting notion there of how we've we read Paul through Augustine's ideas of inwardness and we put it yeah. back on because our ideas and our, our semantics and use of those words have so become defined by Augustine that when we go to translate and read, we we put that meaning on there. And I think at times we do the same thing with Augustine coming from Aquinas or Luther. We've got these concepts already formed and then we go read Augustine. And then, yeah, and and with, with I mean, I'm, I'm unusual because I'm a Protestant Augustine scholar. So I come to Augustine from Luther and wanted to be like Luther and I realize he's not. Catholic Augustine scholars can, often will come at him from Thomas Aquinas. And Aquinas is closer to the way Augustine thinks than Luther is. But on the other hand, his sacramental theology is closer to Luther's. Because mm -hmm. Luther is a, a late medieval sacramental theologian. He gets his, his sacramental theology from the high Middle Ages, not from Augustine, really. Uh, what, what the high Middle Ages added is, is that an external thing can confer the inner gift of grace. Uh, Augustine, I think, just does not believe that. And Aquinas does, and Luther does. Um, but also, I mean, all these Thomists, they think in such a deeply Thomistic way, they can't make sense of Augustine's notion of things like intellectual vision without thinking about it like Aristotle. Uh, but but Augustine doesn't know that much Aristotle, right? right. He, I think he never really learned this identity theory of epistemology. I think he just didn't get that. And he's got something else going on, and and he, it really is Neoplatonic. It's Pl Plotinian, not Aristotelian. Yeah. yeah. I want to save a couple of minutes to hear about your more recent work. I know this is an older book, uh -huh. but to wrap up the discussion on this text, can you speak to the big problem of Christian Platonism, um, that man, Jesus Christ, and how that gives us problems for this epistemology? Right. So, yeah, I think I mean, my big critique of Christian Platonism is that it um, it tends to define the goal of Christian spirituality. Um, it, you know, beatific vision, um, to, 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 to coin a phrase uh, or to steal it from Thomas, right? Right. Beatific vision is Thomas's account of, of happiness, and it really is also Augustine's, right? Augustine doesn't use the phrase beatific vision, but it's, it's clearly what, what Augustine is after. It's a good label for it. Um, and then Thomas keeps on insisting, well, the philosophers don't know about this. And I, as a Protestant studying Plato, think, wait a minute, Plato invented the notion of beatific vision. It's right there in the allegory of the cave. Come on. And you don't think you find it in Plotinus? Come on, folks, right? <laughs> beatific vision is not this supernatural thing that only Christians know about. Right? Right. It is a concept that Christians got from the Platonists. Um, and the problem is it means that, the, that Platonism defines the goal of Christian spirituality. And I think there's a there's a problem there. And, and mm. You know, I, I want a goal that's that's um, well more biblical, more like the kingdom of God, more like um, uh, seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's more like you know transfiguration, where the vision of God is is a vision of of the the glorified flesh of Christ. Um, so I think the Eastern Orthodox help us with that. Um, uh, so, but yeah, I, I think our beatitude really is a, a ultimately an, an outward turn. Um, mm. and, uh, you know, call it the kingdom of God, call it the city of God, if you want to, that's, that's not a bad label either. Um, but it's, it will look different from 
Platonist intellectual vision. Right. And, and that's that's the, the basic critique is, is that the contemplative ideal in Platonism shouldn't be defining uh, the, the, the telos of Christian faith. Um, and I, but I mean, I think there's ways of, of narrowing the gap. The telos of Christian faith can be described as you know, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as, uh, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism has it. Glorifying God is, I think, a good way of describing contemplation as a, as a Christian concept right mm. contemplation is fundamentally worship and glorification and and when augustine talks about the praise of god that's the kind of thing that that you know protestants and catholics who are not platonists can pick up on right the praise of god is is, is part of our beatitude and it involves words isn't that lovely right and yes. maybe music luther will insist right uh, and so on and so i think you can narrow the gap between the kind of christian epistemology i'm advocating and Christian Platonism, but I think there remains there remains a gap that that centrality of intellectual vision, I think, is is well too central in Christian Platonism. Yeah, no, that, that's very good. Thank you. I've been thankful myself for the increase in scholarship on uh, the sermons on the Psalms and ah. the rest of Augustine's sermons because those at least provide a little balance. He has to wrestle so much more with the man Christ. Uh, the right. words of yeah. Christ, the words yeah. of of David and of the church. And I think a lot of good work has come out of that in the last few years. Right. Yeah. As a matter of fact, that, um, yeah, there's been so much work done on his sermons, on his exegesis and so on. Um, and I should mention one more thing then about about the way I disagree with Christian Platonism. Um, Augustine, I think, does make very clear what, what Christianity does that, that Platonism doesn't do. It, it, it it has the man Jesus Christ, God incarnate, right? It's like you know the the good that that shining way above the cave in 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 Plato's allegory comes down into the cave and we beheld his glory, the glory is a, of the only begotten Son. The, the good itself becomes incarnate and is crucified and is raised from the dead and and has our flesh. And Augustine gets all of that. He and his Christology, I think, is is profound and conceptually adroit because he has. He has more conceptual mastery of these things than anybody else in the West until Thomas Aquinas. Um, and that's all great. But he does think of Christ's humanity as our way to God as truth, right? right. As man, he is the way. As God, he is the goal, is the way Augustine puts it. Um, but that means that, that, right, that, that Christ's humanity is something we use to get to his divinity. Yeah, it it's still not means. something God uses to get to our humanity, right? I mean, it is that, but that's only the first step, right? The, the, Christ descends in our humanity to reach us so that he can pull us up where, 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 where God is. And I think that's that makes the ascent into the, the, the goal of the whole thing. And, and no, that's not quite right, right? So it's not like Augustine's denying the incarnation. Absolutely not, right? He's got a better, deeper account of the incarnation than any of us. I mean, he's just smarter than we are. Um, but he doesn't really have the notion of the incarnation of how God gives himself to us in person. That, that's mm -hmm. my big complaint, right? Um, and again, Luther has that in spades. You know? Yeah, we'll leave that there. Tell me a little bit about the two books that have followed up and how they've they've formed sort of your project as a whole over the last, I guess, two well, decades almost. Yeah, yeah. And so, so these were all part of the the dissertation, right? Uh, or right. they were part of the dissertation research. So it took me, you know, somewhere around a decade and a half to finish up all this work. Uh, and the third book called Outward Signs, 
the powerlessness of external things in Augustine thought is the subtitle that tells you what that tells you what the whole project is about right that all three of these books are are aimed at that thesis right is that external things don't have the power to give us a, an inward spiritual gift um I wish they did right I think they do but but they don't in Augustine right and that was what that was about in between uh, the book we've been talking about and this third book is a second book uh called inner grace where I, I needed to um, sketch out how the grace that the sacraments are about um, it develops in Augustine's thought because you know the development of Augustine's doctrine of grace is a perennial issue, and yeah. I ended up um, wanting to think it through precisely in order to emphasize the inwardness of grace in Augustine's thought, and so that was a, a fairly slim book, and it it traces the development of Augustine's doctrine of grace in ways that. Are more or less compatible with with uh, Pat Burns's view in um, his book on operative grace, J. Pat J. Patu Burns. Um, okay. I think he was my guide through Augustine um, and his development of the notion of grace. Yeah. Great. Well, what are you working on now? You say you have a lot of irons in the fire. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, I I finally did get back to Luther, and uh, a couple of years ago, I published a book called The Meaning of Protestant Theology. Augustine, Luther, and the gospel that gives us Christ. And the gospel that gives us Christ is the key concept there, right? The, the, the thesis is always in the subtitle, right? Of course. Um, and, and so I, I worked that thought out, which was originally the thought I was going to write the dissertation on. Uh, so that's actually been published. Um, the next Longest thing, dissertation ever. Yeah, right? Oh, I mean, you're not supposed to do this, right? In your dissertation. Right. You're supposed to get a, a manageable topic and get it done. Um, I got the dissertation done, although it took much longer than it should. And then, you know, it, but it, it gave me stuff to work on for about 20 years. And I finally got back to the, the start, the, the thought that started it and, and actually got published. So that was good. Um, so the next thing, you know, in addition to some some side projects is um, uh, something that happened in graduate school. Um, when I went to graduate school, I finally learned what it what I was saying when I said that the, the son is of one being with the father, you know, mm -hmm. I, I recite that creed every Sunday and I didn't know what I was saying and I wanted to know what I was saying. So, you know, when you read the church fathers, you learn what that means. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so the, the next book that's coming out in March is um, uh, an introduction to the Nicene creed for ordinary Christians who aren't going to graduate school and would like to know what they're saying when they recite the Nicene creed. Right. So it's a, it's a short little book, but uh, I was very happy with it. Um, it made it made me happy to, uh, to to write about the creed because, as Luther says, the creed is a summary of the gospel. It's all about who God is and who Christ is, and and it's a very happy thing to write about. So that one's coming out. Um, somebody uh, in the same press, Lexham Press, which is a, a tied up with with Logos Bible Software. Um, okay. Uh, an editor there who's very active, a man named Todd Haynes, tries to lure me into things. He wants me writing a book called Gospel Ethics. Because he also is a Lutheran Anglican as I am, I see. And, and he wants, you know, so suppose the gospel is how we know God. How does our ethics flow from that, as opposed to just legalism, right? Um, a, a, a Christian ethics that is nothing but law can't work for for, for Luther. It's got to be ultimately flow from the gospel, not from the law. How does that work? Todd said, "You got to write a book on this, uh, Carrie." And I said, "Okay, but first I got to write about the the Nicene Creed. You got that right?" So I got the Nicene Creed book done first. The Gospel Ethics book is is in um, is is halfway done, and I'm still writing about the faith of Abraham and all that, and 
faith alone and all that kind of thing. So I'm in the middle of that. And, and um, boy, am I learning a lot of stuff, but that's dangerous. You know what, you know what happens when you learn stuff is, is the book gets too long and takes a long time to write. That's right. So that may be a while. And then I've got another book um, that I promised to Cambridge University Press about Augustine and religion, um, which will be you know, back to Augustine. And then somebody, a, a good friend, Paul Hinlicky, wants me to write a book about demons because I had this funny little, um, this funny little appendix about Luther and his devils. Mm-hmm. You know, Luther wakes up in the middle of the night and he has arguments with the devil. Right. It happens all the time, right? What in the world is he thinking, right? I had a little appendix on that. Um, and then Paul Hinlicky says, well, why don't you write a book about the whole thing? And I thought, oh, right. But, you know, if you're going to think about Christian ontology, you got to think about, you know, what, what are we set, What are we talking about when we talk about devils and demons, right? right. What are we talking about when we talk about angels? I, I mean, it doesn't fit our modern ontology, but it's it's clearly all over the Bible. So what do you make of that, right? And that's that's going to be the last in the, of the irons in the fire because it's going to take me a while to think through that. Yeah. Good, good. It yeah. sounds like plenty of work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. The last question, is there any work or scholarship that you'd recommend in Augustine ah. coming out these days? Well, <laughs> in fact, the, the books that I've just bought are... Um, uh, 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 Michael Foley's translations of the Kasikiakum dialogues. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. saw that. Yeah, it's a it's a series that's been going on now, I guess, for about ten years. But we re- we're really overdue for a good, up to date uh, translation of these early philosophical dialogues of Augustine. And he's got all four of them now in print, with commentary and really good notes. And I'm looking forward to rereading them. You know, I I read them in in these this old older translations that I think are not all that good. We got a good translation of Against the Academics by, by Omera, but um, the others are not so well translated. And um, so, well, you know, you, you got to read the Latin, of course, of course, but it would be nice if, if we had a decent English translation and right. we do now. And so I'm looking forward to reading through it and working through the commentary and, and um, sort of relearning these early philosophical dialogues. Yeah. Great, great, that's very helpful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for talking. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me. I've been looking forward to it for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Um, it was fun talking about Augustine. Um, you know, you 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 can kind of notice you push a button and out comes a lot of stuff about Augustine. That's yeah. good. I'm sure we'll talk again. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye bye. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Carey. Please go buy his book, Augustine's Invention of the Inner Self, The Legacy of a Christian Platonist. There's a link in the description where it's available. Buy his two follow-up volumes, Outward Signs, The Powerlessness of External Things in Augustine's Thought, and Inner Grace, Augustine in the Traditions of Plato and Paul. Our theme music is Oh Great Light by Jess Ray. And I'll be back here next month with another interview to talk about the life and work of St. Augustine.